Well, before we begin our time in God's Word, if you're a person, a man or a woman, who has served in the military in the past or is currently serving, and if you're a family member of one of those who has or is serving because you make sacrifices as well, I'd like you just to stand for a moment so we can thank you. Would you all stand, please? Today is a day where we're honoring those who have given their lives to fight for freedom. And it's not just the men and women who serve in our military. There are also those who are first responders who put their lives on the line to keep us safe domestically. And yet with all those who are willing to sacrifice, to stand in harm's way, we still live in a world where many don't feel secure, where many uh, wonder what could happen next. We turn on the news and there's another school shooting. We see the news and there's been yet another terrorist attack. Uh, There are those who worry about not just isolated instances, but a a full-scale war that could break out with North Korea, with Iran, or with some other hotspot in the world where things uh, could suddenly erupt. It's, uh, for some, it's, it's a fear of finances. What does the future look like? Have you saved enough? Do you have enough put away to take care of yourself? There are many things that we worry about. There are many things that we wonder, are we secure? As we turn in our Bible today to Luke chapter 12, we're going to see that uh, one of the topics Jesus discusses is in this area of finances. In Luke chapter 12 today, Jesus is teaching. There's a a large crowd that is gathered. Uh, Verse 1 even tells us so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were stepping on one another. Now, in verses 1 through 12, what's happening is Jesus is continuing to deal with the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. We saw last week that uh, Jesus was touching on this issue, and we're going to come back to it next week. I want to jump ahead this morning to verses 13 through 15, because in the middle of Jesus' teaching on this, there's suddenly an interruption. Verses 13 through 15, it says, And someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who appointed me as judge or arbiter over you? And Jesus said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. So here there's this huge crowd of people, and Jesus is teaching, and in, in somewhere in the midst of it there are two brothers that are sitting there. One guy jumps up, points at his brother, and says, Tell him to give me my money. Now, Jesus could have at that moment said, "Um, excuse me, I was teaching here, Uh, but he doesn't. Instead, as the master teacher, Jesus is always seizing on teachable moments, and he says, okay, let's let's address this issue. But as we're going to see in a moment in the parable that we're about to look at in verses 16 through 21, it's not quite like how this man expected In fact, as Jesus begins, he turns to this guy and he addresses him as man. He says, man, who appointed me as judge or arbiter over you? Now, some of your translations may have the word friend here, but that's not a a good rendering of the original Greek because it's the word anthropos. And it's a, a word that literally describes a masculine male. And so what's happening is Jesus is focusing for a moment on titles. He says, okay, uh, let me talk to you, man made of flesh and blood, 
Jesus is physically a man as well. He's taken on flesh and blood, but he's much more than that. He is the God-man. He is the Son of God who has taken on flesh and blood, and he's demonstrated all throughout Luke, as we've seen in this series, that he is the promised Messiah. He is the incarnate Son of God. We've seen it through miracles, through healings, through bringing people back from the dead, through the transfiguration that happened where his glory was revealed as the curtain was pulled back. But this guy doesn't see that. He doesn't address Jesus that way because he calls him teacher. Now, again, some English translations will have the word master here, but that's not the best rendering of the Greek either because the word that is used here comes from the root didasco, which means to teach. This guy says teacher, not son of God, not son of David, not the promised Messiah. And as he asked Jesus to intervene in this dispute, it's not an unusual request. You'll remember that religious leaders of the day, especially the scribes, who were the lawyers of the day, they were always settling disputes. They were experts in the law. They knew what God's word said, what God required. And so it was not unusual to ask somebody uh, like Jesus, if he were a teacher, to intervene in this dispute. But we see Jesus refuses to intervene. Now, it's not that he's, he's not qualified to judge. On the contrary, Jesus is the most qualified. He is the ultimate judge. In John 5, we're told, For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. Jesus is the judge who will sit over judgment in eternity. But we see here this man isn't interested in Jesus being the Son of God. He just wants Jesus to get him some stuff. He, he comes to, to Jesus Christ to be served not to be saved, which sadly is how many people approach Jesus in our day, isn't it? If you were here a few weeks back, we talked about prayer, and we we saw how some people see the Bible as kind of a magic genie lamp, and we we rub it, and we declare in Jesus' name, and we expect Christ to come out and uh, grant whatever wish we wanted. There are prosperity preachers today who focus more on telling people how to get material blessings from God than they do about telling people how to get to God by accepting Jesus as their Savior. And and the reason Jesus Christ came into this world, men and women, is not to give people property. He came to draw men and women uh, to God through the Holy Spirit and then to provide the way home. Uh, Luke 19.10 tells us the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. If you're spending your life seeking the things of the world, I want you to look at the warning here in Luke 12.15. Because Jesus says, beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Our stuff here on earth does not define life, and it certainly will do nothing to help us in the life after if we've not invested it for the Lord while we lived our life. First Timothy 6, 7 through 8 tells us, for if we have, it tells us, for we have brought nothing into the world, and so we cannot take anything out of it either. And if we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. It tells us we begin life with nothing, and we're going to end life with nothing. And while we're living our lives here on earth, uh, most of us can get, a, get along with a whole lot less than we think we need. As I uh, look out over the crowd this morning, as far as I can tell, everybody here is clothed, right? Everybody here has probably eaten, or if you haven't, when you leave, you're going to get lunch or dinner sometime today. We're not without food. Uh, while you may not yet own your dream home, uh, everybody has a place to lay their head. 
The scripture tells us here, if we have food and covering with these things, we shall be content. C.S. Lewis once said, God will give us enough ends along the way to refresh us and make us comfortable. But he will never let us become so comfortable that we make the mistake of thinking we are already home in heaven. Are you content with what you have? Let me tell you a story about a guy by the name of John D. Rockefeller. Anybody ever heard of him? John D. Rockefeller was the richest man of his day. And one day he was sitting in one of his exclusive clubs uh, across the table from another multimillionaire. And his friend is looking at John D. Rockefeller and he says, John, what's wrong? You, you, you seem just out of sorts today. And Rockefeller said, you know, I just don't feel like I've, I've achieved what I need to. I'm just not content. And his friend was surprised. He said, he said what do you need to be content You have so much. And Rockefeller said, you know, I think if I had just $100 more, I would be content. And his friend looked over at Rockefeller, and he reaches into his pocket, pulls out his wallet. He pulls out a $100 bill, and he hands it across the table to John D. Rockefeller. Rockefeller says, what's this? And and he said, it's worth it to me to give you $100 to see what a truly contented man looks like. Rockefeller studies this crisp hundred. He flips it over, looks at it. Then he folds it up, sticks it in his pocket. And he said, if I had just $100 more, I would be content. Friends, how much is enough? What would it take for you to say, I'm content? If you got what it is that you think you want, would it really truly satisfy you or would it just move the needle again and you'd be on to the next or the next thing that you want? You see, ultimately, if, if we're not content in our heart, that word contentment means the contents of our heart. If we don't have true contentment deep down in our heart, no matter what we have on the surface, no matter how much stuff we have, we will never truly be content. And this is the problem in our passage. Jesus is getting down to the heart level here with this man. This guy stands up and says, we have this problem I need your help with. And what Jesus says is the problem you have is not to figure out how to divide up the change, the loose change from the inheritance. He says the problem you have is you need a change in your heart. And it's not just the man who stood up and shouted out. In verse 14, the word for you is in the plural form, so it's y'all. Jesus is addressing both of the brothers. He says, you want me to divide this stuff, but that's just a surface level issue. He says, the problem is deep down, you have a divided and diseased heart. There's greed, there's covetousness in your heart. There are things you think you need. And he says, you don't, you don't need me to talk about how to divide the change. You need to change at the heart level. And that's what leads to this story that we see in verses 16 through 21. It says, and Jesus told them a parable saying, the land of a certain rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, what shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? And he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns, and I will build larger ones. And there I will store all of my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich 
toward God. If Jesus were telling this parable today, he might start out by saying, there was a guy by the name of Warren Buffett or Bill Gates, and he made some more money. You see, as you look at the parable, notice Jesus says, this guy's already rich. He's already got plenty of stuff before this bumper crop comes in. And when he says, I've got this problem, I have nowhere to store my stuff, that's not the case, is it? Because you read in verse 18 where he says, I've got to tear down all my barns. The problem this guy has is his barns are filled to the brim. He's piled up so much stuff, he has nowhere to put anything else. And he's trying to figure out how to pile up even more stuff. Somebody once said that money is like manure. It stinks if you pile it up, but it does a lot of good if you spread it around, right? This guy is just piling up more and more stuff. And he's saying, what do I do? I have all this stuff. Where do I put it? Well, there's plenty of places he could have put it. Starting with Proverbs 3, verses 9 through 10. There it says, honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce so that your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. We bless God, giving back to him some of what he has given to us. There was an early church father by the name of Ambrose, and he said of this man's problem uh, of where to put the stuff, he said, the barns for his abundance were the stomachs of the needy, the houses of the widows and the poor, and the mouths of the orphans and children. This guy had been blessed abundantly, but rather than giving back to God or blessing others with what he had, what, what he does is he focuses only on himself, as we see in verses 18 through 19. He said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns. I will build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. He, he embarks on his expansion project, tears everything down, builds bigger ones, piles it all in, and, and he says, I'm set. He says, I've got so much stuff in there, I don't even have to touch the principal. I get to live off the interest for the rest of my life. He says, I don't have to worry about anything. I don't have to depend on anyone, including God. Now, let me stop for a moment and make sure you understand something here. I'm not telling you not to save money. I'm not telling you that you shouldn't put things away, that you shouldn't have reserves. You should. I'm saving for retirement. I have an emergency fund in my personal life. Our church as a ministry has emergency reserves. You should put things away and not live, not consume everything you have. The scriptures tell us that plainly. Proverbs 21:20 says, there is precious treasure and oil in the dwelling of the wise, but a foolish man swallows it up. It's saying a fool consumes everything he has, but a wise man or woman puts things away. They have reserves. They have a rainy day fund. But this guy is going far beyond that. What's happening here is he's gone to the point where his security is no longer the one who gave it to him, but he's focusing on the stuff that he has. As you look at verses 17 through 19, did you notice how many times the word I and my were used? I'll save you counting. Six times he uses the word I, and six more times he uses the word my. He's not focused on the trinity of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. He's focused on the trinity of me, myself, and I. He says, I don't have to depend on God. 
I'm, I'm in control. I'm, I'm the captain of my own destiny. I, I control my future. Is there anyone here who feels like him? Are you somebody that, that says, I don't need to depend on God. I, I'm a person who's in control of my own life. I control my destiny and future. If you feel that way, I'd encourage you to go home and memorize James chapter 4, verses 13 through 14. Because in James 4, 13 through 14, it says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we shall go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. We have regular reminders of that, don't we? I mentioned turning on the news and seeing the latest school shooting. It it doesn't just happen in schools. It happens in concerts, places of entertainment, like what happened in Las Vegas. It happens in churches, like what happened out in Sutherland Springs not too long ago. And it's not just shootings that terrorists do things with. People are walking down the sidewalk and somebody stabs somebody. Or they take a car and they drive onto a sidewalk and mow down a crowd. It's, it's not just uh, incidents that are smaller like that. Sometimes it's, it's, it's massive incidents like what happened on September 11th, 2001. When planes were hijacked and were flown into the World Trade Center towers and into the Pentagon. As you think in terms of those World Trade Center towers, you'll recall that many uh, investment firms were housed in those towers. And the men and women who got up that morning and went to work, I'm sure very few of them walked into that tower, sat down at their desk and said, today is the day I'm going to meet my maker. Instead, what they did is they walked in and said, how are we going to make money today? What's the stock market doing? How are we going to trade this bond or this portfolio? What are we going to do to, to have more and more? The only people who woke up that morning that probably thought this could be the day I meet the Lord were the terrorists. But they didn't meet the Lord in the way that they thought because they had not yet received Jesus as their Savior as far as we know. I say not yet. They didn't receive him after the fact. They They were those who hadn't placed their trust in Christ. And so when they meet him, it will be for judgment. But as you think in terms of the lives that were lost that day, I had, a, I had a personal friend from college who died on September 11, 2001. Her name was Anna Portilla. Now, Anna did not die in the World Trade Center towers. Anna was not on any of the flights, whether it was the ones who hit the tower or the one that went down in Pennsylvania or the one that hit the Pentagon. Anna died in El Paso, Texas because she had been battling a a brain cancer for a number of years, and that was the day that the Lord called on a home. Now, why do I tell you about this terroristic event where almost just under 3,000 people died that day, and yet I bring in that one of my friends died in El Paso of natural causes? The reason I mention that to you is while there tragically was just under 3,000 people who were killed in a terrorist attack, there were more than that who died that same day through Uh, mundane things like illnesses, accidents, other things, longevity of life. You see, friends, there's a day coming where we will all die if the rapture does not occur first. Ecclesiastes says it's appointed for man to die once. Everybody will face death. Hebrews tells us that when we die, it's appointed for man to die once, and then comes judgment. And as you think in terms of your life, 
the life you're living. James says, you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. There was a businessman who uh, had an angel appear to him one day. And this angel said, I'm going to grant you a wish. Whatever you want, one thing you can ask for. And this guy said, this is what I want. I want a copy of the Wall Street Journal dated one year from today. I want the, the Wall Street Journal one year from today. And the angel said, here it is, and he disappeared. And the man grabs his paper, and he throws aside several sections, and he immediately gets to the, the stock tables. And he's gleefully looking at it, thinking, I have the 52-week highs and lows of every stock. I know what every stock is going to do for the next year. I'm going to make loads of money by, by buying, high, you know, buying low and selling high and shorting and doing all these things. And he's excited. And as he's starting to strategize what, what his first purchase is going to be, he notices in the paper that his picture is there in a section he threw aside. And, and, he, and he wonders, what's that? He, he, he starts to think to himself, well, that must be an article talking about what a great investor I am, what a, what a mastermind I am of controlling the market. And so he picks up this section of the paper to read uh, about his, you know, his, his investments. And what he sees is he's holding the obituary section. And as he reads the article, what he finds is one year from that day, he will be dead. And he drops the paper to the ground. Because suddenly all his plans of making mo- uh, you know, boatloads of money suddenly are no longer important to him. Because he knows that within a year his life is over. And suddenly making all that money is no longer important. As we look at this parable, God says to this guy, you've got all kinds of plans for yourself, don't you? You're already making plans for what you're going to do with this inheritance, this this money that you you think you're going to get. And Jesus says, you're just like the guy in my parable who says to my soul, soul, you've got... And Jesus says, stop right there. He says, whose soul is it? He says, if you read Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 18, verse 4, where God says, behold, all souls are mine. You see, not only did this guy forget where all his stuff came from, he forgot where he himself had come from. And Jesus says to him in Luke twelve twenty, But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? God says, I, I got the early edition of the paper, and guess whose picture is in the obituary section? When God says you're a fool, this word means without reason, a lack of common sense or perception. In the Old Testament, it's used of one who rejects the knowledge and precepts of God as a basis for life. It's it's why Psalm 14.1 tells us, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. This man was a fool because he had made his possessions his God. This man was a fool because he said, I'm trusting in myself. I'm trusting in these resources uh, for security. And, And the best they could do for him was offer a comfortable life. But what would happen when his life was over? God says, this very night your soul will be required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? Now, there's kind of irony in that question, isn't there? Do you remember how this whole interaction began? There were two brothers fighting over the stuff somebody else had left behind when they died. 
Jesus says, when your life is over, what's going to happen to the stuff you leave behind? As you think about what you're pursuing in this life, I want you for a moment to fast forward and imagine you're looking at your obituary in the paper. What's it going to say about you? What will your obituary say when your life is over? Well, say you lived a comfortable life. Maybe you were able to take an early retirement and enjoy a life of travel and ease. Or will your obituary say you love the Lord your God and you invested your time and your talents and your treasures to help others to come to know the Lord? This man was only living for himself, so Jesus called him a fool. And, and Jesus tells us if we're living only for ourselves, we too are fools. Look at Luke twelve twenty one again. So is the man who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now, being rich toward God means that we acknowledge gratefully that everything we have comes from God. And, and then we make an effort to use what he has given to us for the good of others and the glory of God. Now, that's not saying that you cannot enjoy the things that you have worked hard for in this life. Wealth can be enjoyed as well as employed at the same time. You can enjoy your wealth and employ it for things that last for eternity. Matthew six nineteen through 21 tells us, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures upon the earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There is a day coming where God will say to each and every one of us, this very day your soul is required of you. And when that day comes, where will you be? Will God call you a fool? Because you rejected his son? Or will God say to you, welcome home, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Now, it may be that you're here today and you're basing your security not on the goods of this world. You're saying, Roger, I get that our life is only for a short time here on earth. That maybe we're going to have a hundred years and, and then we die. So what you're thinking is, well, I'm, I'm preparing for eternity. And so I'm working as hard as I can in this life to be good. I'm doing as many good things as I can in order to to earn my way to heaven. And friends, if that's what you're trying to do as well, you're wrong. Because what the Bible tells us in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 is, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one should boast. See, God says you cannot work your way home to heaven. You can't be good enough. You can't go to church enough. You can't put enough money in the offering plate to earn your way home to God. Because the way we live our lives does not save us. In fact, it separates us from God. Why do I tell you that? Because if you read Romans 3.23, it tells us, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The word sin literally means to miss the mark. It means we haven't been perfect. As you think through your life, you can think of things you've done that, that were sin. You lied. You took something that didn't belong to you. You can go through and make the list of all the things you've done. We've all sinned. And because we're all sinners, we have a problem. Because Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death. Wages are what we earn. If you think you're earning your way to God by being good enough, God says what you've earned by how you live your life 
is that you've fallen short of the standard of perfection. You've earned death because separation is what defines death. When our physical life is over and we die, our, our eternal soul separates from our physical body. That's death. And in the book of Revelation, we're told there is a second death where those who have not received Jesus as their Savior will be sent to the lake of fire, what we call hell. And it's called the second death because your eternal soul is separated from God for all eternity in the lake of fire. And so what he says is if you're trying to get to God by being good enough, he says you will fail. You will be separated because the wages of sin is death. Now here's the good news. It says, but the free gift of God is eternal life. Do you hear that word gift again? Ephesians tells us that he's given us a gift through faith. And and Romans 6.23 tells us what we've earned by how we live our life is death, separation. But there is a gift of God that comes through Jesus Christ. So imagine for a moment I give you a package. I've wrapped it up really pretty. There's a a nice bow on top. And as as I give you this box, uh, you, you go, what is this? I say, well, it's a gift. And you rip it open, you look inside, and you go, wow, this is great. I've always wanted this. I said, do you like, oh, it's perfect, Roger, thank you. And I said, well, you know, I paid $50 for it, so could you give me $50? Is that a gift? Well, you say, no, I wrapped it up all pretty, I put a bow on it, I handed it to you. And you're saying, yeah, but if you make me pay for it, it's not a gift. And yet, how many of us do that with God? God says, I have a gift for you called eternal life. And we say, thanks, God, how much do I owe you? How how, how much do I have to do to earn that gift? How many times do I go to church? What do I I need to pay to this? How many uh, people do I need to feed over here? And what we're trying to do is pay God, and God says, stop. You can't do it that way. Because you're a sinner, And you owe a penalty of sin called death. See, God is a loving God. God wants everybody to be with him in heaven. The book of Peter tells us that. He says, God desires that none should perish, but that all should come to know him. When people say, well, God is a God of love, he would never send anybody to hell. He is a God of love. And he doesn't want people in hell. He he provided the way that they didn't have to go there. Romans 5, 8 says, God demonstrated his own love for us. And this, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Why did Jesus die? Because there's a penalty called sin. God is a holy God, a just God. He says, I cannot allow sin into my presence. And so the way the love of God and the holiness of God came together is when his son came to earth and he took on flesh and blood. He became the the physical sacrifice as he went to the cross to die for us because the book of Hebrews says, there can be no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. Jesus had to take on flesh and blood. This guy said to Jesus, you're you're merely a man. And he says, no, I am the God man. And I came to die for you. And it's why when Jesus was dying on the cross, you read in John 19.30 where Jesus said, it is finished. It's the Greek word teteleste. It literally means paid in full. What was paid in full? The penalty of sin called death. It's why Jesus hung on the cross. It's why Jesus died because the wages of sin is death. Jesus said somebody has to pay the penalty that you owe and I owe. And the only one who could pay it is the one who did not owe it himself. The God-man Jesus who had lived a perfect life. 
And so he willingly went to the cross. He died to save you and me. And he offers that gift of eternal life to you. But you have to receive that gift. Remember, there were two thieves who died that day with Jesus as he was being crucified on the cross. Two criminals who owed the death penalty themselves. One of them mocked Jesus and rejected him. And he was rejected by Jesus. The other one said, I believe you're who you said you are. You are the son of God. He said, remember me this day when you enter into your kingdom, when you go to paradise. And Jesus said, this day you will be with me in paradise. That guy did no good things after that. He was hanging on a cross for his crimes. He died, but he went home to heaven because he placed his faith in Jesus. He accepted his payment in his place. When Jesus said paid in full, he didn't say down payment made. Now you do the rest, did he? He said, the account is closed. Have you ever had an account that you were paying on and it got paid off? And you got that bill that said paid in full, account closed, and you went, woohoo. And the next week you went back to the store and you said, hey, I'm here to pay on this account. And they go, "Uh, didn't you receive that notice that your account was paid in full? Yeah, but I want to pay on it. And they said, no, the account's closed. You owe nothing on it. That's what God did for us. He says, account is closed when you come to faith in me. I've paid the penalty of death in full. It's why Romans 6.23 says, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's the good news of the gospel. We don't have to do uh, any additional payments because Jesus paid the penalty for us. Jesus Christ went to the cross to pay the debt that we owe. It's why Romans 8, 1 tells us there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Unlike the stock market or the skyscrapers of the World Trade Center, our salvation is secure and safe. In John 10, 28 through 29, Jesus gives us this picture of our security. He says, and I give eternal life to them and they shall never perish. And no one shall snatch them out of my father's hand, out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. As you think in terms of this picture of security, Jesus says, my nail scarred hand here, you've been placed in it and I've closed my hand around you. And then he says, God, the father has come and closed his hand around as well. And he says, nothing can snatch you out of my hand. That's why Romans 8.1 said there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And if you're saying, yeah, but let me think about things that maybe could remove me from God. We'll finish reading chapter 8 of Romans. And when you get to verses 38 through 39, this is what it tells us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Did did we miss anything in the list? Paul says, no created thing. Brothers and sisters, that includes you. You and I were created by God. He says, there is nothing we can do to remove ourselves from God. He paid too high a price for you. When you come to faith, he says, you are mine. John uh, 5.24 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has passed out of death and into life. It's the aorist form. It's a one-way door. He says, you've gone from death to life, and there's no going back. That is the security we have. There is double security. Christ has closed his hand around. God the Father has closed his hand around. 
Paul was led by the Holy Spirit as he wrote this, and he didn't say, hmm, I think this is the case. He said, I am convinced that nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Towers may fall. Your finances may fail. But when you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, your your salvation is secure for all eternity. If you're here this morning, if you've you've never come to faith in Jesus, I'm going to invite you to do so right now. You don't have to walk the aisle. You don't have to raise your hand. But what you do have to do is acknowledge in your heart that you're a sinner. You have to say to God, I realize that I am separated from you by the things I've done with my life. I can't get to you, God, by being good enough, but I thank you that you came and you died for me. You took my place on that cross. I believe you died for me. Your blood washed away my sins. And today, Jesus, I'm accepting your death as my payment. I'm accepting your gift. I'm taking the check you wrote, good for eternal life. I'm cashing it. And I know it's good. I know it won't bounce because you showed me you were who you said you were, the Son of God, because you rose from the dead three days later. Those other two thieves on the cross, they died and were buried. Neither of them physically rose from the dead three days later. The one went home to be with the Lord in heaven his eternal soul. 2 Corinthians 5.8 tells us to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But Jesus Christ physically rose from the dead showing who he was who he said he was, the Son of God, the God-man, his physical flesh resurrected, and he is seated now in heaven. And he invites you to come to him. He is the one who will welcome you home into heaven one day if you've received Jesus as your Savior. If you'd like to do that, I'm going to invite you to bow your heads and pray this prayer with me. In Romans 10, 9, we're told if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. There's nothing magic about this prayer, but it's your way of saying to God, I'm confessing that you're who you said you are. I'm accepting your death in my place. If you'd like to do that, please bow your head and pray this prayer with me. Dear Jesus, I'm a sinner. I've made mistakes in my life. And because of that, I recognize I owe a penalty, a penalty called death. I thank you, Jesus, that you loved me so much. You left heaven to come to earth, to ultimately go to the cross where you died in my place. You shed your blood to wash away my sins. I accept your payment in my place. I'm taking the check. I'm accepting your gift, your payment in my place. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for rising from the dead and showing that you conquered sin and death. Thank you for making me a son or a daughter, adopting me as a child of yours. I accept you as my personal Savior. And it's in your precious name that I pray and thank you. Amen. After this service, I'll be at the front. There will be other prayer leaders. If you prayed that prayer and you came to faith in Christ for the first time, I would like to talk to you this morning. I'd like to make sure you understand that step of faith you just took and to help you to begin to take the next steps to grow in your walk with the Lord. For the rest of us who know Jesus is our Savior, may we leave today and go into the world and share the good news of who Jesus is and what he did. He's given us the gift of eternal life.
we celebrate this Memorial Day, those who gave their lives as a gift. The scriptures say, greater love hath no man than this, that he lay down his life for a friend. Jesus laid down his life for us as enemies. While we were sinners, while we were far from him, he died to save us. And so we've received that gift. We celebrate his gift to us.